great to hear about that particular community on a mission. Um, it fits very well with our theme this fall. Let's see if you learned anything last week. Three words. One, two, three. Very good. Very good. <clears throat> Sometimes our memories don't last a week, so I'm impressed. If you'll uh, take your Bibles again, and we will turn to 2 Corinthians. Now, I realize for all the A-type personalities in the room that this is very difficult, that we're going to preach on 2 Corinthians before we preach on 1 Corinthians. But that's how Danny and I figured out how to swap this. So we're going to 2 Corinthians today, and we will begin with verse 5. But if someone made anyone sad, that person hasn't hurt me, but all of you to some degree, not to exaggerate. The punishment handed out by the majority is enough for this person. This is why you should try your best to forgive and to comfort this person now instead, so that this person isn't overwhelmed by too much sorrow. So I encourage you to show your love for this person. This is another reason why I wrote you, and I wanted to test you and see if you are obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone for anything, I do too. And whatever I've forgiven, if I've anything to forgive, I did it for you in the presence of Christ. This is so that we won't be taken advantage of by Satan because we are well aware of his schemes. And we'll stop there. The sermon title today is We Are Church, The Sermon You've Never Heard. That's pretty audacious for me to say, don't you think? My mom died four years ago yesterday, so she's on my mind. These are her pearls. She lived to be 95 years old. We tend to do that in our family. And so I decided to count up how many sermons she listened to over her lifetime. If you count Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, we used to do that, some of you remember, plus all the revivals we had to go to twice a year, and the missionary speakers, and the 10-day-long camp meetings where they preach three times a day, let me tell you about my summer vacations. <laughs> well, I ended up with a number of about 7,000 sermons or over that my mother heard in her lifetime. But I'm going to be bold enough to say that I'm not sure my mother even heard this sermon either. 
Hopefully by the end you'll understand why I say that and understand this title. First of all, the correspondence between Paul and the Corinthian church is quite complicated. When Paul established the church at Corinth, he stayed there for 18 months as his pastor. This is quite unique if we consider the rest of his missionary journeys. We know that Corinth is very much like Rome. There were Roman citizens, Roman aristocracy. It was the largest city in Greece at the time. It was a place of incredible commerce and education and religion. At the center of the city, there was a bronze statue to Athena and a temple to Apollo. There was a co-mingling of the Greek and Roman gods with mystery religions, Gnosticism, the cults of Isis and Mithra from Egypt. And so along with the converted Jews, the church at Corinth is made up of people with incredibly diverse backgrounds, economic status, and religious practices they tended to disagree. I wonder why. Listen to last week's sermon. The lenses by which they understood the gospel were vast in number, and so Paul had his work cut out for him. After the 18 months when he left the church, uh, we do know that the correspondence between them began. We know that uh, the Corinthians wrote him a letter, and his response is what we know to be 1 Corinthians. And if you read 1 Corinthians, it's almost as if every chapter is answering what we believe to be a question given to Paul by the Corinthians. Lots of issues in 1 Corinthians. They wrote him back. And he was so disturbed by the second letter that he decides to go and visit them. Well, apparently this does not go well. I mean, it goes really bad. And he ends up then writing them again, a letter which is lost to us, which can be referred to as the harsh letter. And then finally, he writes what is known as 2 Corinthians, which is filled with messages between he and the Corinthians and between them, each, each of them to each other of reconciliation and warmth and hospitality and generosity of spirit. As I said, complicated. We do know that in 1 Corinthians there were divisions in the church. Not only did they follow different leaders, they also argued about the relationship between sin and gospel and law. We know from 1 Corinthians that there was sexual immorality in the church. 
which some claimed was perfectly acceptable because after all, we are free in Christ. Paul has to explain to them that we are freed for holiness and for love and not so we can sin more. And we know that he is extremely hard on the guy who is sleeping with his stepmother. And because he is unrepentant, Paul advises that they kick him out of the church. Now to our text that I read for us today. Paul does not tell us who this offender is or what the offense was. Although there are theories among biblical scholars about different ideas of what this might have been about, but Paul does not tell us explicitly. There is a very slight possibility that it might have been the man in 1 Corinthians 5, the man accused of sleeping with his father's wife, but most scholars say probably not. This man is different, and one of the primary ways that he is different is because he has repented. Now, we do know that he is punished. The translation from the Greek in some Bibles as punishment is probably too harsh of a word. More likely, they censored him or rebuked him. We know that he is not excommunicated like the man in 1 Corinthians, but probably called out in public worship, disciplined by the elders. The point is that the discipline achieved its purpose, for the offender repents. And as this translation said, repentance is not just feeling sorry, it is changing your ways. And so this man changed his ways. And so Paul says, forgive him, even as Paul forgives him. He goes on to say, why should we forgive this person? First of all, we forgive this person so that the offender is not so deeply grieved to self-condemnation that he would give up a spiritual journey or belief that Christ could save him and return to paganism. We don't want to heap that kind of despair on this offender. And secondly, Paul says to keep the community we forgive. We keep the community that way from being a vehicle of Satan by allowing folks to remain bitter and judgmental and divisive and holding grudges. A lack of forgiveness in this case not only hurts the man, the community, but also hurts the effectiveness of the community's witness in the world. 
All right, I've made you wait long enough. Here is the sermon you've never heard. I want you to want it, right? right? Here we go. Nowhere in scripture does it tell us to forgive someone who is not repentant. When Jesus speaks of forgiving someone in our earlier text, forgiving them even seven times 70, there is no implication that we are to do so without their repentance. In the story of the unmerciful servant, which we also turn to, both men are repentant in the end. The point of that is that we should forgive those who repent because we have repented and received mercy from God. And yet the church has given the message over and over again to those who have been hurt and wounded and maybe even abused that they must forgive everyone quickly with the threat of God's anger and the removal of God's mercy from them if they do not. As I said, it isn't scriptural. And it's really bad theology. Think of it for a minute, particularly from a Wesleyan perspective. When does God forgive us? When do we receive eternal life? When does God release us from the guilt of our sin? When we repent. And yet we have put on people to do even more than God does by forgiving someone, by forgiving someone who is not the least bit sorry for what they have done and have not changed their ways. It's not scriptural, it's bad theology, and on a very practical level, it hurts people. It hurts people spiritually, on top of hurting people emotionally or psychologically. You've probably heard that um, Brent and I wrote a book together. Um, been out for a while. If you haven't read it, why not? <sighs> but chapter 10 uh, was written with my very dear friend, Julie Schmidt. If you don't know Julie, she's the spouse of Toby, but she is a licensed um, social worker counselor. And so we wrote this chapter together 
out of her clinical experience. And she had one client that wrote this, and I'm going to read it for you today. Listen carefully. My father sexually abused me. He allowed others in the family to abuse me. The feelings of abandonment I experienced as a young child with the abuse created a belief that the laws of safety, love, security, and value didn't apply to me. God's love is certainly enough for others, but God's love is not for me because the rules apparently are different for me. When my dad beat my mom to a pulp to the point of hospitalization, the deacons of the church met together and came up with the official decision that my dad had acted in righteous indignation. Can you believe that? Righteous indignation. I've been taught that forgiving this man is key to my spiritual maturity. I have worked toward forgiving him so that I can feel close to God. It's what I was told. The problem is that throughout my life, forgiveness for him feels almost impossible. And it feels like indifference. And this feels even as a great service to him. It lifts some of the judgment I feel toward him, and I just let God take care of him. But I'm told forgiveness means feeling a sense of warmth and compassion and love and forgiveness and kindness. All those warm emotions I'm supposed to feel toward him. And I can't ever get there. Therefore, I continue to beat myself up and be beaten up by church leaders like I'm not good enough spiritually. You see, it's one more thing I have to do when I've been holding this burden of abuse my whole life. And it's one more thing I can't get right spiritually. The church has put this on her. Christians sometimes introduce the idea that forgiving others is the litmus test of whether or not we are where we should be spiritually. And no matter what kind of healing has occurred, how much progress we try to make, the wounded must face the Sunday school lesson or the sermon that pops up from time to time that su suggests quite explicitly that if you have not forgiven someone, you in turn sin. Or worse, that God will not forgive you. Even if the person who has wounded us, isn't sorry in the least. The message is given often that forgiveness is just a decision. A decision is a matter of the will and thus in our control. And so we must do it now. 
This does not take into account all of the research that we know about trauma and the brain. Sometimes it's added that if we still feel negatively toward a person who is not repented, that we have failed to do our duty. And so messages that we give as the church add to victims' undeserved shame, an undeserved guilt that results from not being able to do what we demand of them. And guilt and shame are compounded. Not only has the perpetrator blamed the victim often, the church comes along and blames them for not getting it over, get o getting over it quick enough, which is most often presented as some sort of mechanical, even stoic decision that supposedly and ironically results in warm feelings towards your perpetrator. Demanding that the wounded forgive with no repentance isn't scriptural, it's bad theology. And most importantly, on a practical level, it hurts the wounded even more. To overgeneralize, the church has missed the mark. By offering this absurdity, that can trivialize forgiveness and make it easy. We are inhospitable to those whose wounds take time. And so, if you look at the book, I've got lots of different definitions what Forgiveness is not. But for this morning, let me say, it is not unilateral and unconditional. It is conditioned upon the repentance of the person. What if the person never repents? Does that mean that we are destined to live a life in deep woundedness without hope of relief? Absolutely not. We believe that God can enable us to move beyond, move beyond the often paralyzing damage of woundedness. And if I had more time, we would talk at length about new creation as helping us receive moving beyond grace. But that is very different than demanding forgiveness of people whose perpetrators could care less. One final thought. And maybe the real reason for the sermon today, I don't know. As we contemplate the idea that we are church, 
we need to recognize that particularly in the history of our movement and tradition, we've gotten our theology really wrong and have said, we're holiness people, we don't sin. People still say that. And if we don't sin, we don't need to repent. How incredibly dangerous. Where sometimes, and this is worse, we misquote a psalm, well, we misunderstand a psalm and quote it, against you, O God, you only have I sinned. Which some of us take, it gets us off the hook from ever apologizing to anyone we have hurt. Some of us need to do some apologizing, even to each other. It's not comfortable. It's not supposed to be. Many, many years ago, I went to a theology conference. By the way, we're not getting out of 12. Just deal with it. Sorry, I should apologize for saying that. <laughs> many, many years ago, I was at a theology conference in Holland. It's one of the first. And what that means is that we gathered all of the theologians and Bible scholars um, together to talk about theology. It happens once every four years. This was one of the first. And so I'll never forget when um, some folks from South Africa went to the mic. And they said, we need to tell you that the policy of the Church of the Nazarene, which is don't interfere with local politics, failed us during apartheid. There were things that should have been said and done, and we were muted. And I remember this sort of silence after they had spoken. And I'm looking at the church leaders there on the platform, and nobody moved. So angry. I went home. I was so angry. Why didn't somebody apologize on behalf of the church? And then it struck me like a stone in the forehead. I am also a representative of the church. I could have stood and apologized. Let me say this. If you have been wounded in the context of church, if you have been wounded by the church and the church has hurt you, let me say on behalf of the church that I apologize to you. 
we should be better. I pray for your healing. And then to all of us here today, if you have wounds, new creation grace can bring healing to move beyond. New creation grace often happens in community. But also this morning, if you have caused wounds, be an instrument of new creation grace to those you have hurt by taking responsibility and apologizing, maybe even in this church. For we are church, and the world is watching. What do they see? Come on down, musicians. do something different today. We're going to sing a song, and I'm going to open the altar. Now, let me tell you that I am absolutely aware that the altar has been used and abused to call people to a quick resolution, and I wish that I could go down and I could, for some of you, sanctify it again, clean it off from those uh, abuses in the past. But I still believe in it. It's at the center of what it means to be Nazarene in some ways. It is a place to receive grace. Here's what's going to be different. We're going to sing the song, and then you leave whenever you want to. For those of you who feel like maybe you want to pray, not for some sort of instantaneous resolution, but to open yourselves to the grace of God, I invite you to come. Carly's picked out, I think, a perfect song. So let's just stand together and sing, and then you go bye-bye whenever you want to. Thank you. And I just want to speak the name of Jesus over every heart and every mind. Because I know there is Within your presence, I speak Jesus, and I just want to speak the name of Jesus, till every dark addiction starts to break.
some of you can just surround them in prayer. I realize that this is a very deep and personal subject today. Um, and so maybe some of you, it's too much to, to come and acknowledge your woundedness. Um, but hear this today, whether you're in this sanctuary or now as you go into the world, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is within you and will enable you to do all for him, with him, in him. And so we know that Jesus, beyond all that we can even ask or imagine right now, is able to do immeasurably more than we can think. It's in his name I pray. Amen.